episode of the show the brothers trek about the original series my name coming to you from a different location in austin is matt and from the other side of the state in houston my brother say hello ken live long and prosper excellent well here we are to discuss another episode of the original series this one titled dagger of the mind dun 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 macbeth Exactly where I was about to go. What do you know about what do you know about this? Well, it's a you know, there's a scene where he's like, "Are you a dagger of the mind? Are you a uh, a false delusion sent?" Yeah, it's the it's the uh, is this a dagger I see before me scene? Maybe at this debating about whether or not to kill the kids of the king and all of that stuff. So yeah, he's really uh, starting to lose it here. It's one of those scenes. So. Even the that that illusion suggests that you know that we're going to be tied up with questions of identity and reality. And right? Are we our real selves, or are we some kind of? Are we not ourselves? And even just in the physical sense of the idea that you know, whenever they tried to remember anything that was erased from their minds, literal daggers in the minds. I mean, well, not literal, I guess. Metaphorical daggers in the mind. Pain in the mind. We are talking about episode 10. No matter which way you look at it. This was the 10th episode which aired. This was also the 10th episode in which they recorded. Oddly enough, Miri, which is our next episode, was actually televised before this episode. What can you do? There wasn't even a lot of, like, crazy special effects in this episode. It was a lot of just the... The uh, the Enterprise above the sea above the planet. I wonder what made it take extra long. Uh, so the the guy who wrote this was uh, Simon Winselberg. Uh, he was well known in uh, the writing community back then, especially in sci-fi, because he basically wrote the first five episodes of Lost in Space, which uh, he could almost have been a co-creator at that point because he wrote the the pilot episode but then created some subplots within that episode that they then fleshed out to be literally the next five episodes of the series. So, of course, Erwin Allen wasn't too cool about, you know, giving extra credit to anybody, so he took all the credit for himself, but, of course, Simon Winselberg did get the writing credit on those episodes. Uh, he also knew, uh, Roddenberry also knew him well from Have Gun Will Travel, uh, helping write a bulk of the series with Roddenberry. Roddenberry actually came in writing 24 episodes, but Winselberg came in writing 22. So, uh, like I said, bulk of the series, that's a lot of episodes for those two to have written of one show. The, uh, there's a lot of Greek allusions in this episode. Uh, we already got our Hamlet allusion. Uh, the original name for Dr. Adams was going to be Dr. Asgard. Uh, the reason it was bumped, the reason it was changed was because NBC was worried about pick your... <laughs> uh, sorry. 
<laughs> NBC was worried about people snickering at the name Asgard as if it was some sort of guard for your back end, the way they put it. Like, that's ridiculous. Nobody's supposed to understand Greek mythology here. Is that what we're getting at, NBC? You are quite ridiculous. With that said, they changed it to, uh, to Dr. Adams. But the name, the Tantalus, was also the uh, son of Zeus, who was uh, condemned for, her cri uh, for his crimes and made to rule the underworld. Much like Dr. Adams, you know. Not only is the penal colony under the world, but, you know, it's also a bunch of criminals under there as well. So, also interesting. So, the, the note that I have here for this kind of stuff is uh, we seem to be using some Harry Potter naming. So, in Harry Potter, characters are often named based on, you know, these kind of very obvious attributes. You know, so Remus Lupin right. is... Remus is... is one of the founders of Rome, who was raised by wolves. He's also a werewolf. And, of course, Lupin is the Latin word for, uh, for wolf, or derived from it. So, this is very common in Harry Potter. And the, the one that at first struck my attention was that we meet a Dr. Noel, who Kirk had met at a Christmas party. Right. As though... She was named after how she comes into the story. Exactly. And then, you know, you get these other names of people who are named for what they do or what role they play in the plot. And suddenly I'm like, oh, it's, it's Harry Potter naming. Many drafts of the script were done by uh, Winselberg. In fact, um, it wasn't until the uh, fourth rewrite, the fifth script, that it was actually brought to NBC to see if it was good to, uh, you know, good to do or not um and some of the early jabs robert justman the producer wrote roddenberry uh basically saying that he thought the idea was a little fantastical he says i don't think that we're doing outstanding science fiction tales here that's what he says he goes we are not a science fiction pulp magazine well i question that considering we're doing a sci-fi series here i understand the idea was to write very human stories in a sci-fi setting but also if you can get away with the sci-fi why not do it so, one of the themes that science fiction would, would take up is this question of, like, are humans perfectible? And so you get some dystopian stories, you know, where, you know, everyone's supposed to be equal, and so the, the child who's exceptional has to wear headphones where he hears noise and distraction. And, uh, you know, so that everyone becomes mediocre. Or strong people have to wear weights. You know, so this is a famous, uh, you know, story from the period. And so, you know, if you look back at, at this question of perfectibility and you go back to the progressive era, you find a bunch of really kind of troubling, uh, you know, social trends. You see uh, it's an era of eugenics in which people want to breed out the poor. And, you know, this frequently also means minorities. So you get things like uh, you know, the social approval of using birth control to, you know, let's, let's hand it out to the poor and to minorities because they're going to pollute um, the race. And then this expands from being, you know, not just you know, everywhere in progressive society, but also you get one, one you know, country in which they get broken 
they go they lose a major war they have massive inflation they're having revolutionary agitation and they kind of you know fall from civilization to barbarism in, in one sense and they take this idea to its logical conclusion and perpetuate the Holocaust in which they try to eliminate the Jews but of course they're engaged in, in mass extermination against not just the Jews but uh, racial inferiors, physical inferiors, mental inferiors, ideological inferiors, mostly communists, and the work shy, lazy, the lazy. They're trying to, you know, create a, a perfect society. And while they're doing that, you've got communists who are basically engaged in the same kind of perfectibility program. They, they're looking for the new Soviet man. And to get there, they end up starving millions of their own people. China will do the exact same thing. Uh, you know, roughly at the time that Star Trek is airing. And so, you know, you then have this question of, well, you know, is this project still viable? And so you'll have movies like Clockwork Orange, which will both postulate the ultraviolence and then, you know, the solution to it, the, the Ludovico technique in which they basically turn uh, our anti-hero protagonist into a docile quiet, good member of society by silencing the, the bad parts of his brain. And in a lot of ways, the technique that's going to be used in this episode is very much like a clockwork orange. It's going to come out of this perfectibility program and it's going to be this kind of, well, we're not going to kill people, we're not going to you know, take some criminal and kill them. That would be, that, that's what the Nazis did. That's, that obviously reveals that the progressive era eugenic ideas are, are poisonous. But what we still might think about is are people going to be amenable to drugs or to beams or to you know, programs of videos in which we can silence the bad parts of the mind and you know in some in some regards the drug part of it is one that would be more familiar with us. Although, here in Star Trek, they would have been at the outset of the, uh, you know, Mommy's Little Helper and the Tranquilizers and, and this kind of stuff. But I, I see a lot of similarities between this and Clockwork Orange in the question of, can we deal with crime by silencing the bad, you know, these troubled parts of the brain? Interesting. Well, I mean, I... I think, again, that's a lot of the idea of the time that we were living, or that they were living in when they wrote this. Um, it's funny that there, there's another couple of things that show up in this that just feel like it's so out of the 60s. Again, them trying to look so far ahead into the future and see what it would be like. And I think that everything you said is right on the money. And you have, you have a nice contrast with our characters where... Kirk seems to be in favor of this program, right? He's like, hey, these, these prisons aren't even prisons. They're more like resort clubs. But, of course, McCoy, who in many ways will always turn out to be the moral center of the show, you know, fulfills that function here by saying, Jim, a cage is just a cage. Or a cage is still a cage, yeah. You know, so, you know, the show has ambivalence. It starts off from the very beginning telling us not to not to cheer on this what's going on here even though Kirk is very much a cheerleader for it 
So uh, once they go to NBC, NBC comes up with another great point, which is funny because there's a lot of like contentiousness between the network and the show. But sometimes the ideas that the network brings aren't bad ideas. For instance, one of the things they said after this was um, they felt that many of the heavies that we'd been running into the last, you know, over the series as it had been so far were all mad scientists, you know, trying to create a new world order and whatnot. And perhaps that that trope had been overused on the show already at that point. Uh, they also felt like mental, the idea of things dealing with your mental, you know, mental powers, uh, being in your brain and all of that stuff yep. had also been this, overused. Yeah, the super beings. Yeah, had also been overused by this point. This is another uh, example of Roddenberry taking control of the script and rewriting it in such a way. Uh, most of the script was rewritten by Roddenberry. The dialogue they felt was a little bit clipped. It didn't feel like the characters. So uh, again, in Roddenberry's rewrite of this, definitely turned into more of the Star Trek that we know and love today. Again, that's much to his credit. You know, the network meddling, as it's often called, is, you know, it's often criticized as being a problem. But, you know, these guys are in position because they know what the audience wants. This is what they study, right? These guys aren't the creatives who make shows. These are the guys who look at the what the market desires, what the audience is watching and what the audience is talking about. You know, so obviously they're not going to be always right or always wrong. Well, one thing too is that sometimes they are, they're playing right. the audience, you know? Like if they're having trouble with an idea in a script, then maybe the audience would too. Also too, if you notice in the opening credits of this... Uh, of this script that it's not written by uh, Simon Winselberg, but it's actually written by a guy named S. Bar David. The reason was because is the once he saw the final draft of the script, uh, Winselberg decided he didn't want his name on it, so he wrote to the Desilu lawyers and said, uh, "Take my name off it, put it under a pseudonym." Um, it's too bad too because as a writer, as uh, as good as he was in writing TV science fiction and. Stuff he was actually set to rewrite uh, Galileo Seven and another script at this point, but uh, once this happened, another another writer or another Roddenberry not appreciating Roddenberry's you know hand in their work. Yeah, which is unfortunate because it, you know, and you you brought this up before. You know, today we have an idea, the, the concept of the showrunner, and you know, you know, if you're gonna participate in a show that has a showrunner, that you know, they're going to convert what you've written into something that looks more like other episodes of the show, that feels right. like the show. They're going to take the final pass on it. Yeah. And so I, I think that writers would have much less difficulty with that happening. I mean, it's, it's just how it works, and we understand it. Whereas I think much here in the earlier period of television, and, you know, you, you can easily see where different writers go in different directions with different attributes of how weapons work or, you know, how shields work, how the engines work or how time works or, and you get an inconsistent product. And especially in a time where you broadcast a show and then you may never see it again. That's okay. But of course, it's not how things worked out in the end, is it? Exactly. This uh, episode was directed by Vincent McGeevy. He was the guy who handled uh, Balance of Terror, 
they liked that episode so much that they brought it back to do this one. So he was also very key in bringing in some of the people that they uh, for the show, including James Gregory, who played uh, Dr. Adams. Uh, he was another, you know, one of those guys who had been around Hollywood and TV for a long time. But of course, later in life, everybody would know him as uh, Inspector Luger from Barney Miller, of all shows. Uh, Mariana Hill, she was the one who played uh, the beautiful Dr. Noel, or Helen Noel. And uh, uh, she too had been around a lot, uh, but knew uh, the director as a personal friend. And that's how they got, she got on the show. That's all my notes pre, uh, pre-show, so I say, as always, let's hop into it, sir. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So as this episode starts, we have this beautiful remastered shot of them flying over the penal col- colony, uh, the rings of the planet looking gorgeous, as always. It's another thing that gets added in, in these remastering works is uh i don't think there was a single planet that had rings in the original series right in the original versions and right by the time the remastering is done we kind of realize that rings are actually pretty common mm-hmm. you know that there are faint rings around uh you know four of uh, the eight planets in the solar system and only one of them are they prominent and you know we kind of associate saturn with its rings but jupiter uh, Uranus and Neptune all have rings. So uh, we move from this beautiful shot into a close-up of I don't know what. At first I thought it was like a close-up of a pill bottle that said, you know, the uh, infrasensory drugs. But then the guy takes it away and it's this like giant like air valve thing that he uh, pulls off. So that made me laugh. I was like, okay, not a pill bottle at all. Something giant. So the guy carries it up, puts it on the transporter. I was thinking about this name, the infrasensory drugs, right? It really made me think about it for a second. And I thought it was another one of those ridiculous, you know, 60s made up names. And I'm not saying it's not. But if you think about what we know of extrasensory perception, ESP, right? Right. So this must be the inward version of it, I guess. Right. Infrasensory drugs. You know, if you were working on your human perfectibility, the kind of drugs you might be taking. Yeah, right, exactly. Especially when it comes to the interior of your brain. Anyway, they are beaming these things down to the uh, penal colony, but they appear to be having trouble. So having uh, Kirk walk in at this point, at this point, solves the problem by saying, hey, maybe you should uh, ask them to lower the force field. This is the kind of thing that I think, like, Whenever something silly like this happens in an episode, something that clearly a transporter chief should know, I feel this is something that's probably going to come back. They, they want us to know that there's a force field around this planet because later it's going to play into what happens in the script. But anyway, I just thought that so, was silly. That's interesting because you see this example and you think, aha, the story, this is Chekhov's gun. Right, exactly. We're going to see this later on. And when I saw it, I saw it as a term of world building, you know, and which we need to explain to the audience that a penal colony, even though it's isolated on a planet, might still have, you know, a, a protective beam. You might think, well, it's a planet. In, this, you know, in the sense that, like, a place like Devil's Island or Alcatraz, you know, where islands off to themselves, they still had all the accoutrements of prisons. Right. 
That's what it's like. It's like a giant Alcatraz. I like that. That's, That's right. good. Um, I also like, too, how, like, again, if this were the next generation, we would see them, like, exchanging passwords or some kinds of, like, official code. But they pretty right. much are just like, hey, we're the Enterprise. We're going to beam some stuff down. And they're like, cool, go ahead and do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like some kind of, like, trucking company or something. You know? Right, they're right. Just like, no, it's cool. We believe you. Sure, just send down whatever you got to send down. It's going to be fine. We got your delivery. We've been expecting you. Exactly. Pull run back. <laughs> so they beam their thing down, and then uh, another thing comes up. Uh, it's funny because on it, it's labeled, you know, a don't look in because we got something important in here, story-wise, later. But it also says uh, Department of Penology. I thought that was mm -hmm. really great. <laughs> like, is that a real department? I don't think so. You're making that one up. In the future, it is. Possibly, you're I, right. I could be totally wrong. I also wrong. like the, the geographical location. It's supposed to go to Stockholm, Eurasia, and E. <laughs> and E. Which is what again? I'm not sure. Northern Europe? Yeah, I guess so. It's better than Northeast because it's not Northeast Eurasia. <laughs> so then Kirk gives the transporter chief a little jibe about going to learn how to transport stuff from penology. And hey, it's a good thing that he leaves too because it leaves this other guy here by himself so that if anything were to happen with this crate, oh no. <laughs> and sure enough. Turning. Exactly. Sure enough, Check some, these controls. something does happen. Uh, no, first of all, and then why does nobody come in to take a crate either? That's That was the other thing. It's like, are they waiting for people? There should have been people. They knew it was coming. There should have been people here waiting for it. What's happening here? All of this to say. Oh, I also felt like, too, if this were the next generation, that this would have all just been, like, shipped into, like, the or beamed to the, the shuttle area. You know, I feel like that's where it would have been, and then this guy would have like been hidden in some of the, hidden in one, and then crawled out and gotten out through the you know, through the shuttlecraft area as opposed to in the transport room. room. Yes, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> also, as to another point that you made last week, where are the sensors on these transporters? Like, should they have sensed that perhaps there was something inside that of this box? What is it doing here? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I think the transporters would have alerted somebody to this, but no. Anyway, so with all of that said, somebody crawls out of the box and uh, attacks the guy who, again, is by himself and has his back turned. Doesn't matter. It's fine. Judo chop! We see a lot of judo chops in this episode. Judo chop. The original script, by the way, had him getting a knee to the face. But again, NBC censors oh. saw... Yeah, right? But NBC censors saw that in the script and said, no, no, that's too harsh. Just judo chop. So they judo chopped. Uh, yeah, so there's an awful lot of combat. And you see it in Star Trek, but you also see it in late 60s, early 70s television shows in which there's some action like a judo chop in which you kind of go, okay, fighting occurred here. And we're not going to really show it because this is TV and it's family hour. But no. there was fighting here. In, in the same way Batman would put like a giant biff, pow, bang, and you go, oh, look, there's combat. Exactly. Even though their combat was more like dancing. <laughs> well, sometimes it was. The bat, the Batucci or whatever it was. <laughs> so with that, we go to the opening credits. Uh, it was fun because I got to, I got to watch this episode uh, here at the house where I am, uh, where I am house-sitting. And uh, they have a 4K TV and a sound bar. 
So got to really see some fun stuff when it came to the 4K. Obviously, uh, the lighting really stands out. Uh, looks really extra cool on the 4K for some reason. It also holds up because I feel like a lot of what I've been watching on the 4K feels like it's videotaped. I've heard a lot of people make that... that uh, observation. Thank you. Make that observation <laughs> as well. Uh, and in fact, it's funny because like whenever we'll like Jamie will throw on some HGTV or something of that, a lot of that stuff which is filmed in digital does look like it's very videotaped. In fact, it even almost changes the experience of watching some of those shows. It's very crazy. But I feel that the film aspect of this of, of the show really holds up under 4K. It's really cool. Also, they have a sound bar, and so being able to hear the uh, the Star Trek theme in the sound bar was. An amazing experience. It sounded really great. You know, the idea of like going to hear, you know, this music live. Obviously, uh, the Star Wars has had lots of, um, you know, John Williams music done as symphonies, and you yep. go and you'd hear like a ninety-minute performance. There's uh, actually there's a Harry Potter one coming to Austin soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again. A lot of that early stuff was John Williams. I don't think he did the whole uh, eight films. No, yeah, yeah. Like John it's, Williams. It's the first. They're actually showing the first movie, but with the live orchestra score. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so the idea of hearing these these themes live, intriguing. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know it's funny too because John Williams, speaking of Lost in Space, also did much of the music for Lost in Face as well. And while we're on the subject of music, Alexander Courage gets the uh, gets the credit on this one because even though no new music was recorded for this episode, 60% of it was at some point written by Alexander Courage, which they had reused. So since it was 60%, he gets the credit. Stadek 2715.1. That's where we are now. Uh, they have departed without going ashore, which is too bad for Kirk because he really wanted to meet Dr. Adams. Uh, McCoy and Kirk. This is another episode, by the way, where we hear about how awesome and amazing some person is before we actually meet them. Right. It's the second episode in a row for us where that happens. Uh, you know, again, just story establishment of, uh, of uh, characters. It uh, also creates a sense of a big world in which, you know, there's like a Federation news service or... You know, word gets around, people have reputations, mm -hmm. and, you know, top scientists and so forth are not, you know, working away in their lab in obscurity. So this is uh, the scene here where McCoy and Kirk are discussing the penal colonies, where Kirk says they are like resorts now. Uh, but then the penal colony, uh, uh, Tantalus calls up the uh, NCC-1701 to tell them that the prisoners have escaped. We cut to said prisoner who has now stolen the Ensign's uniform, engineering uniform, who yet still turns away at the sight of people because he doesn't know what he can get away with yet. His plan is not really that great. It's basically, I'm going to beam aboard the spaceship and hope I get away with it. <laughs> That's what it feels like at this point. You know what I mean? Obviously, he's there to like, well, as we find out, to get asylum and all of that stuff, but like... It's not very well thought out what he was going to do once he got on board. Very true. Uh, the Enterprise goes to security alert number three. 
And then we get to a guy who's like, hey, you engineering dude, what are you doing on deck 14? I was like, what's wrong with an engineering guy being on deck 14? And again, he could have just played it off by being like, oh, this panel isn't working or something. But again, all he does is run. So we find out that uh, the security is now being sent to deck 14. He then kills a security guy, or at least knocks him out. We don't know which, but doesn't take his uniform, but does take his phaser. So now real problems are happening. Kirk calls back to the, the Tantalus colony to tell Adams himself responds, which is interesting. Kirk informs him that they do indeed have the prisoner aboard. And yet again, we hear how dangerous this guy is. They keep telling us how dangerous he is. The turbo lift opens and a security guard walks out. Whoo, it's a fake out. You thought he was coming, but he wasn't. McCoy then comes over to talk to Spock. Spock says, you know, it's interesting. You earth people glorify violence for 40 centuries and yet you imprison those who glorify it glorify it privately oh well then so, yeah go ahead you so we have the two observations the one is that of course the Vulcans also have a past of uh, violence as we found out in the last was, episode right brought up during the Romulans and the, the other thing oh, is that I, this seems to be a reference or at least informed by this kind of uh, classic story of the Emperor and the Pirate, which is a mm -hmm. story told by Augustine. So apparently, um, Alexander the Great, the Emperor, has captured a pirate, or a pirate is brought to him who's been captured. And the pirate basically makes the observation that, you know, you commit all this violence, and we call you a great conqueror, you become an emperor. I commit a little bit of violence. And I'm a bad guy, I'm a pirate, and I have to hang. And so, you know, this distinction between, you know, glorifying big violence and criminalizing small violence, I think is part of, you know, lurking behind Spock's commentary. You should have done something clever, like, you know, repressed everybody. <laughs> that would have been much better. Exactly. Oh, it's like, that's about what's, what's to come. Perhaps if you had a beam that would help people do it. <laughs> so uh, the turbo lift opens again, but this time there's no fake out. It is the killer. But he says, I want asylum. And Kirk says, at gunpoint. Uh, he, assures, he wants assurances that he won't be taken back to Tantalus. Kirk, of course, won't make such, such uh, assurances. A knowing look passes between Kirk and Spock. And Spur Spock starts... Spurk? Spock starts to, starts to circle around the back. I'll destroy your vessel. Decide now, Captain. Well, Captain doesn't need to decide. He karate kicks and disarms him. Spock uses the Vulcan nerve pinch again, and boom, he is down. They decide to return to Tantalus. In sickbay, Bones is curious about his ward. He says he wants to study him. He doesn't understand what's happening in that brain of his. But Van Gelder then lashes out. Oh, is this the way it is in your federation? Wash your hands clean, he says. Kirk's asked him what his name is. In your is. federation. Well, like <laughs> I don't think he actually said that. I think I added that. But still. Okay. <laughs> he, basically he basically says that the whole, the whole system is, uh, is in trouble. Uh, Kirk asks him his name again, uh, but yet he still has trouble again saying it. Uh, we find out why later. But for now, we don't understand. 
interesting tidbits sort of come out here uh, that something was erased, uh, that he used to be the uh, assistant to uh, to Doctor uh, Doctor Adams. Perhaps we don't know at this point. Sorry, a little behind the scenes information here about the actor. Uh, who plays, uh, he had worked with uh, McKeevy before, so he felt like he was in very good hands with them. And he also knew that if he was going over the top in his, especially in this scene uh, and all of his scenes, you know, where he's kind of going mad and whatnot, that he knew that he felt like McKeevy would come up to him and say like, all right, maybe we want to rein it in a little bit. Maybe, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then he felt, as he watched it, he was like, wow, I, I think I did go a little bit over the top. I think it was a little bit too much. And he kept thinking that until he got a phone call from his agent who said, wow, I didn't know you could do all of that stuff. <laughs> to which he replied back to his agent, well, you just haven't been watching what I've been doing, have you? Because <laughs> I thought it was obvious. But anyway. Well, I, I think Star Trek likes, the, uh, likes broad acting. So this might be an interesting point to point out that, you know, of course, Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly are both film actors. Right. Now, DeForest Kelly has mostly done westerns with a little bit of police drama. It's not the kind of work that necessarily... Uh, it's subtle work, because basically you're just there to facilitate a plot, right? Right. Leonard Nimoy had been a method actor, or he still was a method actor. Uh, it was a, you know... And so he is always engaged in these very subtle emotions. And part of it's because of the way he's learned to do film acting in, you know, just a, a change of the expression, very subtle. Yes. And of course this works out well for Spot, who's supposed to not have emotions. Although of course, earlier on when they, we first, uh, or I guess, you know, coming up very soon, when we first meet Dr. Noel, you know, he's going to give this, oh, another one of your ex-girlfriends kind of looks, yes. right? It's it's subtle, it's wry, it works very well. And Shatner, of course, is a stage actor. And not only is he a stage actor where you kind of have to convey things with your whole body so the people in the back can see it, but he's a Shakespearean actor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there's lots of big drama, lots of big emotions being conveyed in Shakespeare. And so, you know, putting together a Shakespearean and a method actor, you get these two dramatically different styles of acting, which for Kirk and Spock work very nicely, mm -hmm. you know, to, to show the two different kinds of characters. But, you know, as we get from the title of this story, The Dagger of the Mind, whether it's just Roddenberry, whether it's lots of the people on this show, they like Shakespeare. Yeah. And I think one of the things they also like is the big, broad acting. Show us the crazy. You know, bring it on. Give us the full, you know, uh, Lear. Give us the full uh, Macbeth. Give us the full pathos. Yeah. Don't hold back. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, Jamie and I have been going back and doing a rewatch of Twin Peaks. And I was actually amazed how even in that show, a lot of the acting was, was a little over the top. Uh, some of it I was just like, oh, okay. That's, that's pretty amazing. Obviously, I'm watching it with a much more modern eye than, you know, from 20 years ago. Right. But even still, it was, I, was, I was pretty amazed. And that it, again, those, they, they were all theater people. Yeah. Um, 
it all been on West Side Story together. <laughs> well, especially those two, yeah. So, as we're back at it, Bones now sedates him. Uh, he's gone mad again, it seems, saying he would rather die than go back. Back on the bridge, Spock has been reviewing the, uh, the, the background tape on Mr. Dr. Van Gelder. Uh, he was not assigned to the Tantalus. He was Dr. Van, or he was Dr. Adams' associate. Dun dun dun! The plot has thickened. Kirk calls back to Tantalus. Dr. Adams' story is that Van Gelder was using uh, an experimental beam that he hoped would rehabilitate some of the worst criminals in the in the colony, and Van Gelder felt that it was a his that it, he hadn't the moral right to try it on anybody else until he had tried it on himself. But Bones doesn't buy it. Kirk needs more Once than again. A you know, Bones is kind of the moral center is just going based on intuition. And of course, Kirk calls him on it. You know, this is a we're men of science here. We need facts. We need evidence. Yeah. And basically what McCoy has is, listen, I'm going to enter it in my log. And if I put down that I've got concerns about stuff, you have to answer in your log. Sorry, Captain. <laughs> you know? I know. I love how he even apologizes. He's like, oh, that's just what we're going to have to do. Well, it was very much a sorry, not sorry, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, what I thought was interesting, and again, not knowing this episode nearly as well as some of the other ones, I thought it was interesting how Adams totally goes along with it. You know what I mean? Uh, Kirk has to sort of diplomatically, you know, uh, Say, uh, well, I have to open an investigation in the circumstances that, you know, of what's happened to Van Gelder. You know, um, I love his, like, very diplomatic usage of, because I, I just got to follow the rules here. Sorry. Um, and a surprise view. And again, I thought it was amazing that Adams was, was, like, totally cool with it. He's like, yeah. In fact, he says, I would consider it a personal favor if you beam down yourself to look into it. So, commercial. Dun, dun, dun. Back at it here, Stardate 2715.2. So what, like three hours have passed? All of this has happened in three hours? That's pretty amazing. Back on Tantalus to fulfill his obligation to the doc's medical log, is what he says, into his log. Bones asked to keep uh, Van Gelder on board. Spock agrees that they should probably do that. Bones was asked to find a doctor who would fulfill Kirk's wishes, and it just happens to be this hot little number named Dr. Noel, or Dr. Uh, Helen Noel. And it appears that they have met at a party before. Apparently an office party, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, a Christmas party at that. Apparently <laughs> uh, they had good punch. <laughs> clearly. Spock, uh, or uh, Kirk tells Spock, uh, tell McCoy that uh, she better be the best assistant I've ever had. So they beam down together. <laughs> so, now, we got some history going on here, right? Again, Although yes. we don't know what it was like. She is being very flirtatious with him. Yes. You know, she's interested in, you know, but he's not having any of it. And so what we'll see is, the captain that we've been talking about, who's really not the Lothario of the galaxy. Uh-huh. Um, she, you know, and the way we get this particular episodic, you know, romance is that she uses the device, you know, to implant the ideas of it in Kirk. 
rather than what we get here is uh, I'm commander of the ship. I can't be bothered with romance. You know right. what happened at that Christmas party was just it was just a Christmas party. Right. <laughs> Maybe I drink a little too much Romulan ale. <laughs> Or holiday punch, <laughs> and you can totally imagine, you know. So this is the Mad Men era, right? Mm -hmm. You can imagine these guys going to work, you know. Ha you know, Christmas parties get out of hand. It, it's a trope, right? That Christmas right. parties are kind of a thing, and so you can watch people sitting at home going, "Yeah, those Christmas parties, can't blame them." <laughs> they get a little out of hand sometimes, even aboard the Enterprise. Even in the twenty-third century. Uh. So I thought it was funny that when they beamed down, like nobody contacted the penal colony again. To see if they were okay? Yeah, to see if it was okay to, for them to beam down. Like they didn't get the clearance this time. They were just like, okay, beam them down. There they go. Yeah. So this little scene uh, was one of those, um, one of those things that Bob Justman, the producer, thought we should cut. It was an eighth of a scene that happened, you know, above the penal colony. It's an eighth of a scene. We don't really need it. If we do this, we're going to need to come up with some kind of crazy matte painting again. We can't afford to do that. So we got to do something. So we got to just cut the scene and we'll just have everything else take place once they've landed in the penal colony. But of course, Roddenberry wanted to keep it because he felt like it establishes a little more chemistry between the two characters here, Helen and Kirk. So they decide they're going to keep it. Now, obviously, in our remastered version, we have this like stunning mountain vista. We can see the rings in the air. The, the entrance to the penal colony is like in the middle of a valley. You know, there's no getting off of it, even if you got that far, you know. But in the original, what they decided to do is take the matte painting from where no man has gone before of the, you know, of the giant... Uh, the lithium crystal, the lithium crystal thing. And they airbrushed it to make it look less like a industrial Factory. area and more like a penal yeah. colony. So, thought that was really interesting. It was another nice way for them for them to save money. So uh, here, Noel, Doctor Noel's trying to get him to call him Helen, uh, just like you yeah, know, like we met at the party, and she was like, ah. he's like, nope, that was another time or place. More of what you were just talking about there. But then they enter the turbo lift and it just starts to like plummet on them. They don't even know it's coming. And sure enough, here they are. They got to hold each other now. I guess this plays up some more of that chemistry that Roddenberry was looking for. Dr. Adams, right off the bat, comes off uh, charismatic as hell. You know, he's even offering drinks. Kirk tries to call the ship. Dr. Adams explains, well, the force field just still won't let communication through. Even though it did at the beginning, because they got to talk to him before, Kirk is now suspicious. Although, what I would imagine in that case is that you've got a receiver outside the force field that's wired into the communications thing. So if a ship or someone were to hail them, the receiver's outside, it would pick up a signal, you could answer the call, so to speak. But that him being inside with just a little handheld, he can't communicate out. So that's strong enough. Yeah, he have to go find a thing that has the receiver and the and the the uh, outgoing message part <laughs> that's outside the compound. So Kirk is not suspicious yet. He's still uh, taking everything in stride. Me as a viewer, I'm totally suspicious of everything that's happening. In fact, so here we have two episodes in which Kirk is taken in by the reputation 
uh, you know, the good scientist who's doing good work. He's got a good reputation. It's groundbreaking. Maybe Kirk has read his his papers, or maybe he's just read the the glowing press about his work. Yeah. But we've got you know this thing where Kirk is taken in uh, by the good reputation. So then enters uh, Lele. Is that her name? I didn't catch it, and they never said it again. But I think her name is, is Lele, which is weird. It's like a very. I think it's the uh, the river of truth in Greek mythology. Ah, or the, okay. Or forgetting. Uh, it's the river of forgetting the truth, or yeah. I thought Something this. Like that. I thought this was just another uh, another one in a long line of James Bond type of female characters. You know, Lele. Anyway, Kirk, <laughs> Kirk questions her. We're given a uh, a dramatic tone as she said she loves her work. You know, she says this like very robotically. But she says it like a Vulcan, right? Right, exactly. I and then we're work. given this very like dun 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 when she says it, as if it's supposed to tip us off, but not right. anybody else. Adams explains that uh, you know the shifting of memories is something that we do here. And then Dr. Noel tells us that, yeah, that's just basic psychotherapy, <laughs> the shifting of memories. That's not scary at all. Uh, Kirk looks like he's about to investigate more, but then Adams proposes a toast. Then they just kind of stroll through the penal colony. Many happy faces coming at them. Looks like every prison I've ever seen. I don't know about you. Uh, we stop in a doorway. <laughs> we stop in a doorway. There's this guy with, like, dead eyes at the controls. Kirk asks about it casually. Adams calls it a failed experiment. Kirk, of course, wants a closer look. Noel says, what's the point? It's a failed experiment. What? Why? You asked me here for my opinion, and Kirk says, well, the advantage of being captain is that uh, being able to ask for advice but not having to take it. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I took that quote, uh-huh. and I had to put on a t-shirt for Karen. Oh, that's right. I remember birthday. that. Because she, she, she's a director. Right. And I thought, well, that's exactly what a director needs to have on their shirt. A little Captain Kirk quote. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but again, in another surprise, I, I, I love the way that this story unfolds. In another surprise, Adams charmingly agrees to like, yeah, all right, let's go take a look at it. You know what I mean? He's not being secretive. He's not trying to hide anything yet, you know, that we feel. It's really... It really kind of keeps you on your toes as a viewer of like, what's actually going to happen here? Because maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I thought what's going to happen in this episode isn't what's going to happen. Back on the ship uh, in sickbay, Van Gelder now mentions the neural neutralizer. Doesn't get much else out about it because of the block that's in his brain. And then (laughs) Bones gives him this hypo spray that goes on forever. It goes on for like five, six seconds. It's like... <laughs> need 112 cc. Yeah, it needs a lot apparently. Back on the planet, we get to the neural neutralizer. They're talking about it there. It relaxes patients, keeps you know, keeps their minds at ease, but only temporarily. That's what he's saying. So you know, if you think back to uh, Clockwork Orange, there's this long part of the movie where you know our protagonist is is at this facility where he's learning he's relearning to be productive and you know everyone seems to be doing these kind of gardening and playing chess and you know it's it's not so much just about being calm and you know happy but about being productive yeah so i'm watching this thinking you know this is 
this is you know basically taking Clockwork Orange and making it a TV show and then having. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Kirk then basically asks him, well, then why do you keep using it? And of course, Adam says, I'd hope, I'd hope that there's a slight chance that someday it'll work. And they walk out and Kirk walks past the dead eye guy, right? Doesn't barely even notices his existence. But then Kirk asks him, well, how does it work? And the guy simply says, well, there's an on and off switch and there's the intensity volume. <laughs> like, okay. Then Noel again reassures him that like neural beams are being used on Earth. Everybody's using it. All the, all the cool kids doing it. Yeah, exactly. So Kirk uh, then asks about Van Gelder's injuries. You know, says, uh, hey, what happened to this guy? You still haven't told me. And then he says, what happened here? We could... He could have sat at that intensity for weeks, but then he had to try and push it. Too... It's a pity. It's a pity. So then Kirk turns back to Deadeye Guy uh, to thank him, but the Deadeye Guy says nothing. And then as soon as Kirk leaves, Deadeye Guy tells the person in the seat to forget all he's heard and try not to remember it because it will cause you pain. And then there's this really nice shot of them like pushing forward into the guy on the chair. And it's funny because I thought that was like, it had like a very 80s feel to it. You know what I mean? It's probably good and scary in the 60s. It probably gave a nice little like extra yeah. to that. Yeah. Exactly. So we go back. Uh, Spock has now uh, tried to get a hold of Kirk uh, to tell him about the neutralizer. But Dr. Adams is in the room, so Spock doesn't want to say a lot. So again, keeping us on our toes, Dr. Adams is like, well, hey, you got stuff you guys got to talk about. I'm going to go take care of some other things. I'll be back. Uh, so more suspicions grows in, in Kirk's mind here uh, as he decides he's going to stay the night. So what we have here is in both cases, I'm going to you know, look back at, at what little girls are made of in this episode. Kirk originally has this high reputation of both scientists. But being a scientist himself, he's always open to the counter the counter theory. Mm -hmm. So he spends you know no time in which he's going, no, 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 uh, these dead bodies are perfectly normal. These, you know, suspicious things are perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. The way, for example, in this episode, Dr. Noel is doing. Right. She's writing it all off. Whereas he's basically saying, as a good scientist would, okay, here's my thesis. I need to disprove it. If I can't, then everything holds up. But if I can, we have a problem. And so he's he's always you know looking for that where where can I challenge my hypothesis that everything is okay here. Kirk decides he's going to stay the night. Van Gelder hears it from the bed, starts screaming, "No! Don't let him do it!" tries to tell them tries to tell them more about it, but again his brain isn't exactly cooperating. It must be causing him more pain as we learned from the other guy. So he tells Spock and McCoy that Kirk's staying there. Well, is death. I don't know. We get the word death. That's about all I understood. But we go to commercial. Dun, dun, dun. Back at it. Spock decides he's going to do the Vulcan mind meld. Which dun, we've dun, never dun. heard about before. This is brand new. Yeah, exactly. This is brand new. The what and not now? only that, but he's never, even, he's never used it on a human before. 
Spock continues to warn of its dangers, but McCoy is like, we gotta save Kirk, you gotta do it! Yeah, we, we, we get lots of exposition about how this is working. You can tell that this is where it's new. Because yes. they don't just do it. They tell us all about it, and like, here are the weaknesses, and here's how it could go wrong, and here's, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But this moment, too, feels like the, the moment in the other episode where... Where McCoy's like, you know, in all the galaxy, the one person we have to save is Kirk. You know what I mean? So it's like, no matter what we do, I don't care if, it, if you burn out your brain, we got to do it to save Kirk. <laughs> wow. Burn out your brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, brain works like a car, right? You can burn out your car. Yeah, I mean, everything works like a car, right? Starship works like a car. <laughs> brain works like a car. U.S. economy hey, in the works 60s, like a car. That's what it feels like. <laughs> Didn't we have you know a few episodes ago where they're talking about the radiator? Basically, yeah, basically, I yeah. That happened. <laughs> All right, so Van Gelder, too, at this point, decides, like, hey, yeah, you got to do it. You know, this, I want you to know it's in my brain. So he does it. He gives uh, Van Gelder a bit of euphoria so that he feels a little bit more calmer about what's happening. And then we cut to Kirk, who visits Noelle. What's your opinion on the inmates? Oh, she says, you couldn't have waited till morning to ask me this question? He's like, yeah, but I did it. <laughs> He's just, like, so damn serious about it. Again, like you said earlier, just trying to cut it off. Nope, this isn't happening. Kirk suspects that it's the neutralizer has dimmed some of the patients in the facility and he demands to see it for himself. So I'm going to bring this up here because uh, we have a very interesting situation that happened here behind the scenes. Because originally when Kirk beamed down, he was going to beam down with Janice Rand. Oh. But, yes, but there were many reasons at this point why they decided not to do that. First of all, because of the, uh, the, the flirty nature and the whole thing that happens here in the story with uh, Dr. Noel. They felt like, well, Rand's already sort of had some of these feelings and thoughts and stuff that have happened with him, so let's not use her for that reason. Another reason was is because, as Bob Justman put it, Kirk would be stupid to play with a machine that he has no idea how it works. So they had to put somebody else who was capable down there, too, of handling the machinery and whatnot. Mm. Plus... As we know, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff occurred here, too. Uh, Shatner wrote in his book about Trek memories that it was at this point where he speaks vaguely about her sickness, but you sort of get the sense that it was like alcoholism or something that had come into her at this point. She wasn't looking good. She couldn't remember lines. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney at this point has come back with that, saying uh, that's a bunch of BS, especially when it comes to this episode. You know, so, it was a lot more about the story. Uh you know, one one possible in you know, a way to harmonize our our sources of information is that perhaps Shatner was actually given this inform, you know, told this because yeah. we know that here at at episode ten, they're basically going to let her go. Mm -hmm. So you can easily imagine a kind of conversation that goes something like, "Well, we're going to let we're going to uh, just dispense with the Yeoman Rand character." Oh, why? You know, it seems like it's working out well. Well. You know, uh, Whitney's having some difficulty, uh, diff you know, not remembering lines the way, you know, we think maybe she's gotten ill. Uh, it's probably just best to, you know, save some money on the thing and just let her go. And he's, he, 
you know, heard this thing of, well, maybe she's ill or whatever. It, it yeah. could have been something that, because when you fire people, you don't often say, hey, we just had to save some bucks. It was all about the bucks. And any one of you right, could go exactly. if it was going to save us more bucks than we're earning by having you on screen. It's all about the bucks. Instead, you say things like, well, she's ill, or, you know, it's not working for the story. You know, you come up with, with these kinds of explanations so that people don't feel badly. Right, exactly. And so he may have picked that up on the set that, oh, she's ill. Another person written out of this script was also Scotty. He was supposed to be the guy uh, in charge of the transporter at this point. But because of the deal that they had with, uh, with James Doohan and the number of episodes that he would be given, anytime he got to come on set to do anything as Scotty, they had to pay him 850 bucks. So he was also like, uh, they also like, well, let's just save some money. If all he's going to say is, you know, oh, we couldn't beat him the stuff down, then we might as well go ahead and uh, not put him in this episode. I also feel like, you know, getting confused about the penal procedures is not something that really right. should happen to Scotty. Yeah, the chief engineer. Yeah, it's much, it's much easier to have it, you know, happen to a low-level guy who, you know, this is the episode at which he learns, oh, remember about penal colonies. They've got security. Right. And then for, for the rest of his life, he'll remember because he forgot this one right. time and it looks stupid. So, uh, back to the mind meld. Uh, we hear Van Gelder saying that he can sh that uh, Adams can shape any mind that he chooses. He can even use it to erase our memories. It's really interesting in this scene as Spock's dealing with the mind meld that he keeps using the hour. You know, it's not just your or, you know, like he's really making like I'm a part of this. Right. So I thought that was a really nice use of that pronoun if for no other, no other reason for that. Van Gelder goes on to say that uh, he could replace thoughts and it is so lonely sitting in there empty such agony to be empty empty is what van gelder says it's plays later obviously as we know back on the planet kirk subjects himself to the neutralizer kirk doesn't remember their first attempt so he suggests some harmless uh, suggestion so she tries hungry that works he feels famished he wants to raid the uh, kitchen pantry if they can find one so he next suggests a uh, uh, a suggestion that would be a little bit bolder, something a little bit more different. So she suggests changing in Kirk's mind what ended up happening at the at the Christmas party. <laughs> so then we cut to a scene where they're coming back from the Christmas party and they're in Kirk's quarters and there's a big red light in the back background. Guess you don't have to turn off that red light, do you, Roxanne? So um, this whole big thing happens and then while Kirk is in the middle of this delusion, Adams comes back in and takes over the controls cranks up the intensity and suggests that he will uh, suggest that Kirk is in love with Helen and that he will cheat and steal and give up his command for Helen to love him. But now, Mr. Kirk, what if she's gone? My thought is, like, she's right there. Why isn't she just, like, yelling from the side, like, don't listen to him, Captain, you know? I mean, she could be yelling any other amount of suggestions. You're a gorilla. You know, like, get I'm out of right the chair. <laughs> Exactly. I'm over here. I'm not gone. You know, like she could have been doing anything from where they were. Like they should have taken her out of the room. But of course they needed her there for her reactions. We know, but I'm just saying. So anyway, Adams has Although, Kirk, again, uh, called you know, the a few more dollars on the set. And there could have been a glass window behind that panel where they just <laughs> yeah, could have exactly. taken her behind the door. And she would have seen everything and we would have seen her. But, you know, she, she could have been yelling and we would have, we would have heard nothing. Yeah. But we would have yeah, seen but it there's all. no door or anything there. That's what's also so weird about that set. 
You're right. For a few dollars more, they could have just added a door and a... Oh, well, it's fine. Whatever. Uh, Adams tells Kirk to call the Enterprise, but then they just cut to a close-up of Kirk, and he's crying for his lost love of Ellen. Commercial. Back at it. Noel takes him in. Uh, oops. Noel takes care of him. Uh, tries to tell him that, uh, you know, Adams was filling his head with this, but the suggestion still leans her. She tries to make him re remember, and then Kirk, Kirk starts to fight it. Kirk starts to fight it because I think he's got a willpower of 15 and probably a plus two against mind control. That's just my <laughs> guess. Uh, we're in a penal colony here, and yet they've decided that they can just escape through the air duct. <laughs> this, is some, uh, this is some security on that penal colony, don't you think? Seriously. The guards show up, take Kirk away for more treatments. The pain only gets worse as you decide to fight it. The treatments continue. They demand to know Helen's whereabouts, but Kirk, with his crazy willpower of 15 plus 2 against mind control, continues to fight it! <laughs> Helen, meanwhile, finds the, finds the engine room. We know this because it has the same mesh as our engine room. Apparently all engine rooms are similarly decorated. They're all prefabricated. Uh, exactly. The big switch says danger on it, but she can't, get the, 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 she can't flip the switch. Guards slip by her as she hides around the back of a corner. They walk by. So she attempts it again. She flips the switch. They attempt to put Kirk back in the chair. He judo chops. Boom. In the engine room, Helen fights off the guards. But the guard turns the electricity back on, then turns around and starts back onto Helen. But just as he does, Helen judo kicks him into the circuitry, and then all of a sudden it starts to go high wire and it shuts down. I'm not exactly sure what happened. He, he grounded here. out the system. Yeah, apparently. And yet later it gets turned back on by Spock. I don't know how this all fits together. But fine, we're, we're going to buy into it. It's cool. Uh, the force field goes down. So now Kirk, who, or now Spock, who's been waiting in the transporter, can beam down himself. And he does it on his own without any security to follow him up into the penal colony. Okay. Helen escapes uh, back into the air duct as Spock reappears. Spock... <laughs> Spock wanders over and he sees a, a, a door to the uh, force field. And it has a lock on it. And he punches it. And it opens. Uh, and he turns the, uh, he turns, he not only turns the force field off, but then turns the electricity back on. Adams is now lying on the floor in the neutralizer room, getting a taste of his own medicine. Noelle returns back to the room where she and Kirk were earlier. Kirk kisses her. She tries, to, she tries to push him away, telling him that Dr. Adams' suggestions still linger just as Spock walks in. What? Adams suggested? Spock? Adams, we gotta go! So they run out the room, but they find... Oh, and they, and they run across Bones, who enters the room with them, and they find Dr. Adams on the ground, lying there. He's dead, Captain, says Bones. He was alone. Can you imagine a mind emptied by that thing? Without even a tormentor for company, says Kirk. Back to the ship. We find out the treatment room has di been dismantled. It's hard to believe a man could die from loneliness, says McCoy. Not when you've sat in that room, says Kirk. We leave on a melancholy Kirk. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> 
And that's the end of that episode. But we do have a uh, interesting change of events here. It's another one of those things where uh, Roddenberry changed the ending because he didn't like the way that uh, it was originally written. So back in the scene at the end, the way this would have ended would have been uh, Adam saying, um, but what of my reputation? Unfortunately, I have little else except now. With this device, I have power. Power over the minds and thus over everything. Over everything, and that's what counts. This great final criterion. And since I have it, I've decided to use it for myself. After all these years of doing things for others. Say I want to be comfortable in my old age, on my terms. And I am not... I am not a most... Oops. And I am a most selective man. Kirk, struggling to remain conscious, yells back, Unnecessary! What about trust? He yells. Adam says back, Trust of mankind? To offer me my reward, you are an optimist, Captain. In this work, I've learned too much about men's minds. So that was the uh, that was the original final confrontation between Adams and Kirk. The the megalomaniacal ending. Exactly, uh, but Roddenberry obviously did not want this because he didn't want this to be our future. He later admitted to the uh, to the writer of this book that. Uh, his hope for mankind would be to overcome the petty differences and emotions such as envy and jealousy and greed. It, this obviously would be the idealism entered into Star Trek The Next Generation during the first two years of that. But um, uh, the problem with this ending as it is now is we've sort of lost the motivation as to why he was doing this all in the first place. We can sort of say, yes, he was just trying to make the human race better, that he was trying to make you know, a better life for these criminals. But it's never really stated, and it's not completely all there. Right. So I, I feel like there's a... By leaving that meg megalomaniacal piece out, we get this kind of through line from the history I was telling earlier about, you know, we're trying to perfect humanity. Uh, you know, and obviously, you know, eugenics is not the way to do it. But maybe... You know, maybe these kinds of uh, control psychology is the way to do it, whether it's through the drugs or through these beams, which apparently all the cool kids are using on Earth. <laughs> yeah, right. And so that leaves him as a do-gooder who's gone too far or made a misstep. That he his his goals were good, but he still ended up with a bad result, and the captain had to you know set things right, which is mm -hmm. how a lot of these things work out in Star Trek. That's a very Star Trek feel, is that there's no villain. Instead, a, a do-gooder didn't have enough checks on what he was doing. To There was no one to say no. Right. You know, so one of the theories about... Well, been, except for Van Gelder, apparently. Right. Although, what happened to Van Gelder, you know, so... Right. What was it, what we True. were told? You know, an accident in the development... Or was he totally, uh, you know, messed up by Adams? Yeah. So, you know, one of the theories about the Beatles is that one of the things that made them, you know, so good was the tension, you know, an almost kind of Apollonian versus Dionysian tension between Lennon and McCartney. And that right. they needed each other to say no to their excesses, to mm -hmm. to produce the best work, and and the rivalry between them, you know, to 
motivate them to do better work and so forth, but that they both needed someone to say no. And that left you know, to their own devices, we get their solo careers, which have fewer high points and more uh, the kind of indulgences you know, that they're left to their own devices they were vulnerable to. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that kind of you know, idea that you've got a lot, you know, whether it's um, Daystrom working with his, his uh, supercomputer, which we'll see uh, later on, whether it's Adams here, whether it's the guy we just saw in the last episode with his the, the pasture of uh, immunology. You know, the, these guys need someone to say no. They, they, in a sense, they need the bureaucratic controls that we see in that tension between Spock, Kirk, and McCoy, where Kirk might be uh, swayed, overwhelmed by someone's good reputation to say, hey, you know, the excellent scientist says there's no problem here. We should just move on. But instead, you've either got Kirk or McCoy, depending on the episode, going, no, 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 I've got problems and I need you to back me up on this. Either because I'm gonna use the privileges of my position as the ship's doctor, or my long, long friendship with you, and either character could do that. And and Kirk will say, okay, well, you know, against my better judgment, I'm gonna let you, you know, decide that we're gonna open up an investigation. I'll go along with it. And I'll be open-minded while we do it. So those, those three characters, in a sense, need each other. Because you can totally imagine that if Kirk had been left to his own devices in these two episodes, you know, he could have been... that, that The way Dr. Noel was overwhelmed by the good reputation of the Doctor, he could have gotten suckered in. He could have beamed up at the end of you know, the first day and said, hey, everything down there is legit. Yeah. But he didn't. He took what McCoy said seriously. Someone said, no, Kirk, no. Don't trust the good reputation of the doctor. Check it out. Be skeptical. He's like, okay, I'll go be skeptical. The importance of having friends who will tell you no. That's right. Just look at the Star Wars prequels. Speaking of excesses, that's what I was thinking of when you were talking about Lennon and McCartney. I was like, Uh, yeah, yeah, see, that's, I mean, obviously, as much as I love the Star Wars prequels, I think that there was a lot of stuff where... Well, did we? I my point is, as always, did we really need a twelve-minute uh, Padre scene? You know what I mean? There's twelve right, minutes right. of screen time we could have used for anything else. Right, and you know, especially in this world of special editions and you know bonus extras, that could you know, there's no reason that you couldn't sell that as, hey, if you buy the special edition DVD, the, the Padres is actually twelve minutes long. Yeah, exactly. And it is so cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then you have a three-minute version of the movie. <laughs> that would have been great. Anyway, so the uh, only other thing worth mentioning about this episode is that the, this is the, the first of the episodes to come in under budget, and it came in almost 10000 under budget. So uh, that's how well they were at uh, saving pieces here and there that they could film uh, at different times or with different people. So... It's nice for them to have, uh, by episode 10, finally had an episode that was under budget. So they have no Janice Rand. Right, exactly. They have no Hikaru Sulu. Yep. No nice. Montgomery Scott. Exactly. We uh, just airbrushed some old map paintings. Exactly. No so special effects. Go. 
Well, there we go. The uh, the end of that one right there. Next week, we'll be doing the episode called Miri. And uh, it also introduces us to another important uh, gene who will enter the scene. And that being of Gene L. Kuhn begins his uh, reign next week as well. So there we go. Lots of cool stuff happening in the next episode. And uh, with that, nothing else to say. Have a great week, and uh, we'll be here in the same bat time, same bat channel. Me coming to you from Austin. I'll say farewell, farewell, and as always from Planet Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. That's right, and we'll see you all next week. I forgot about this during the show, but I can't remember the name of that Klingon prison planet in Star Trek VI. Rurapenthe. Uh... Yes, Basically, they just sneak in and beam the guys out. It was a question of timing. No, it was the shield. Remember the shield? They had to go so far out that the shield no longer covered where they were at. Yeah, so the the characters had to go. But, you know, it's not like... Uh, this is a small asteroid. <laughs> That's a yeah, tiny right. shield. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, I know. It's crazy. And, and part of that's because this asteroid is supposed to be so deep in Klingon space. You know, part of our getting through is having, you know, everyone read Klingon manuals and go, you know, uh, we are bringing soup and crackers and stuff. Yep. Oh, okay. Drow? Drow? <laughs> Don't get bed bugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if it was that easy for the Enterprise to sneak past a Klingon checkpoint, can you imagine how easy? You know, I mean, it's like the Romulans are probably all over this place. All they had to do is come up with a plausible response in Klingon. Nobody was like, beep, 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 beep. Uh, your ship looks like a Constitution class uh, heavy cruiser, dude. What's up with that? Hmm. How come you're not in a Katinga class cruiser? <laughs>